I, I cannot encourage you enough to be reading the, the, the passage for Sunday morning worship ahead of time. And particularly here as we're in this ser- sermon series with First and Second Samuel, I, I, I can't encourage you enough to make the, the, this part of Scripture part of your weekly devotions because it is impossible for me to, to preach on all the events that have been recorded for us on all the, the, the events that took place in the life of David, in, in the life of Israel. The only way for me to get through this um, in the time frame we have for the end of the school year is if I fast forward through significant parts. And if you fill in the gaps on your own by, by reading the surrounding passages. You know, over the last couple of months we have seen that because of Saul's arrogance, because of his willfulness, because of his rashness, because of his pride, and because of his unwillingness to repent, that, that the Lord has rejected Saul as king, and the Lord has chosen another um, to assume the throne. But, but here's the thing, this transition doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it takes place over about a 15 to 20 year period when the, with the transition of the thr- throne from Saul to, to David. And during that time, Saul remains desperate to hang on and hold on to his power. He, he is consumed by insecurity, by paranoia, and by anger. And if you dig deep enough, you'll see that, that, that while Saul's anger is actually with, with the Lord, in the end, um, like with most people, what he does is he projects his anger onto another uh, primarily on, onto David, the one who God has chosen to replace him. Now, although David has become family, he, remember he married one of Saul's daughters. Although David has proven himself over and over and over again to be faithful to Saul, David's military success and David's popularity with the people of Israel um, serve as a constant reminder of Saul's failures of, of Saul's shortcomings, so much so that, that Saul grows, uh, grows to resent David's very existence and, and tries, on several occasions, tries to kill David himself or to have um, someone kill David on his behalf. So David, along with, with him, so David, along with anybody who's willing to, to stand alongside him, um, are driven into the wilderness. They are forced to spend years um, running for their lives and hiding out in the desert. And as we get to our pasture today, they are hiding in a place called Ian Getty. Um, if you'd pull the map up for you, I hope these maps are helpful. I just want to give you a context of where these places are. Ian Getty is located down along the Dead Sea. And it's a place, uh, uh, the, the Plymouths are planning a trip to Israel when things open up again, and they will most likely, one of the places you almost always go is Ian Getty. This is a place where David hung out. If you go there today, it, it, it is, it is, it is uh, a, a spa. Now, you have to pay extra for the spa if you decide to do that. But it is a spa where they use the, 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 the what do you call the, the minerals from the Dead Sea to treat people. And to, it, it's, it's an incredible place. But it is... It is surrounded by aridness. It's surrounded by, by desert. It is a it is a place that is uh, pretty uh, pretty remote, especially back in David's time. 
So they're hiding out in this, this deserted area, running from Saul. So I'm going to ask you, we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 4, beginning with verse 2. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. So David's hiding out near Engedi. And it says, Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men um, in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfold by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of that cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seem, shall seem good to you. And then David arose and he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, he said, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and they did not, and did not permit them to, kill, to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David arose, also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. <coughs> As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good where I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. May God richly bless the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, um, 
there's a lot going on in, in this passage. Uh, there's a lot to be said. I can only say so much. I ask that you'd help me to speak clearly, that, that we would see what it is that you want us to see and that you would minister to us. And we would draw strength from what we hear today. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <clears throat> now, David's attitude towards life in general, towards uh, his throne, and towards his rule as king is seen clearly in our passage today. But it's made especially clear when it is contrasted with the dark backdrop of Saul's reign, of Saul's attitude, and of Saul's grasping after power. You see, David understood that the authority of his rule and the success of his kingship was based entirely upon the authority of another. It was based entirely upon the rule of an even greater king. David understood that as a human king, he had to live in submission to the authority of a divine king. And, and that's never made more evident than in the passage that we just read. Now, again, if, if, you, if you've never been to Ian Getty, I have been there. And <clears throat> it, it, it's a bunch of hills that run along the Dead Sea. And these hills look almost like honeycombs. And that there are just thousands of caves that are they're worn out in, in the side of this, this hill, this, these mountains. And it's, it's filled with one cave after another. And, and, and in order for Saul to maintain his dignity in front of his, his men, his military men, um, he enters into, a, they, they take a pause, he enters into the cave to relieve himself. Kids, he went in there to go to the bathroom, all right? Now, you got to ask, what are the odds what are the odds that out of the millions of, of wilderness acres, what are the odds that Saul would just so happen to enter this one particular cave where David and some of his men are, are hiding out? You know, along with, with David and along with his men, those of us who are reading this passage can clearly see that this is not an accident. This is not some sort of strange coincidence. Anybody who's reading this or who was there that day can see, clearly see that this is an opportunity that has been clearly orchestrated by the Lord. That the Lord has delivered Saul into the hands of David. I mean, even Saul can see that. Now, if you've been with us over the last month or so, or been reading the passage, you know that Saul is guilty of all kinds of, of evil. And not just against David. And, and, and this is chapter 24, but back in chapter 22, which I didn't address, if you read it, you know that, that Saul had 85 of the Lord's um, priests killed. And not only that, they lived in this, the, the, the city of Nob, and not just those 85 priests, but he had their families, the entire, city of, the entire city of Nob slaughtered all the men, including all the women and children and even the infants. He wiped them all out. He had them all killed. So Saul is no better than the Amalekites, which we talked about a few weeks ago. So Saul was evil. Therefore, he was no longer worthy to sit upon the throne. 
And if the Lord has orchestrated such circumstances, then surely he wants David to capitalize on this opportunity. Surely he wants David to get the justice that he and so many other people clearly deserve. Um, Surely he wants David to bring an end to all the conflict, all the running, all the hiding, and all the suffering, and, and to seize the throne for himself. I mean, it does. It seems pretty obvious to everybody. Um, but David refuses. And, and, and here's why. Although Saul is guilty of all kinds of evil, although he is no longer worthy although Saul is deserving of death, and, and while these circumstances are clearly beyond just mere coincidence, um, and while it does seem as if the Lord has delivered Saul into the hands of David, David knows the scriptures. David's familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, where God said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. David knows that. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 36 it says, for the Lord will vindicate his people. David knows that the Lord promises to vindicate his people. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, they, the, the people of God are commanded, you shall not take vengeance. Because, again, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And then in Exodus chapter 22, which would have been available to David, verse 28, it says, you shall not revile God, nor shall you curse the ruler of, of your people. You see, David recognizes something here. He recognizes that if the role that Saul currently holds had been given to him by the Lord, then it was up to the Lord to take it away, not to him. He recognized that taking the throne for himself was wrong because such a gift was something that only God could give. It wasn't something that he was entitled to take. And therefore, he is determined to wait upon the Lord to give him the throne. Now here's something else. David understood. David understood that God did not need his help in making it happen. I mean, if the, if the Lord wanted to, he could have given Saul heart. He could have killed Saul at any moment. But David recognized that the Lord does not need his help. And over and over and over again in, in 1 Samuel, we see one example after another where David demonstrates this incredible capacity for restraint. Over and over again, we see that David refuses to take matters in his own hands in order to put himself forth or to promote himself in, in any way. And what we see in David is, here's what I think we're supposed to see in this passage, what we see in David is an, is an incredibly important character trait that qualifies him to rule over Israel. What we see in David is, is this constant display of, of submission to the Lord. What we see in David is a determination to follow God's will while at the same time doing so while keeping God's ways. What we see in David really is an incredible principle of, of how the kingdom of God operates, which is very different from the kingdoms of the world. But I want you to notice something here, and this is important. While David refuses to carry out justice against Saul himself, it did not stop him from crying out for it 
In front of everybody, in front of Saul, in front of Saul's soldiers, David laid out the situation before the Lord. David accused Saul of wickedness. And then he cried out for God to judge between them. And he also cried out for God to punish Saul for his wickedness. And I know that that some people will say, you know, that's a pretty bold request. Some people will say that it's wrong for or inappropriate for a believer to cry out for vengeance against another human being. And one commentary writer I read this week, he said, that's because so many of us are captive to our own Western sensitivities. Listen when I say this very carefully. Our cries for justice must always be weighed against the forgiveness and the mercy of the Lord that the Lord has offered to us. Our cries for justice must always be weighed against the Lord's call for us to pray for our enemies and to to do good to those who persecute us. But, we as a church, we should be very careful not to criticize people when their cries are wrapped up in emotion. We should be very careful not to criticize people when they put their feelings into prayer. And we should be especially cautious when they are willing to leave that judgment, when they're willing to commit that vengeance to the Lord. In fact, Psalm 7, Psalm 35, Psalm 55, Psalm 58, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and and Psalm 139 are all what you call imprecatory psalms. And they were all written by David asking the Lord to bring judgment upon his enemies. And if it is okay for David to cry out and ask the Lord to bring judgment upon his enemies, then it is okay for us to do that as well. Keep in mind the context that I established just a moment ago, all right? Here's something else that's important to understand. It is important that we know that these psalms are not so much a request for the Lord to exact revenge upon his enemies, but rather they are written to evoke the Lord's abhorrence of evil. They're written to evoke the Lord's promise of divine protection for his people. That, that's a subtle difference, but it's, it's, it's essential difference. Now, I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to point it out again. In Revelation chapter 6, John tells us what it was that he saw in his vision of heaven. He says this, he says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. In other words, he says, I saw the souls of those who have been redeemed. I saw the souls of those who have been set free from sin. And look what he says about him. He says, these people whose souls have been redeemed, who have been set free from sin, he says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So even in heaven, they are crying out for justice. I also said a couple weeks, the full gospel, the good news in all its completeness, it always includes the year of the Lord's favor. It always includes the celebration of God's forgiveness and his mercy. 
But the complete gospel, the good news in all its completeness, also includes the day of the Lord's vengeance, when God will bring out his vengeance, when God will exercise justice on those who are evil, on the enemies of God's people. I mean, the fact is, what comfort can there be for God's people if they cannot place their case in the hands of the Lord and then expect him to to bring about just vengeance on their behalf? Especially when they have submitted to his command that they leave it up to him to judge and make judgment, right? So I just want to make very clear that although it needs to be Done in context, it is not wrong to cry out to God for justice. Now, this is not the first time that that Saul has attempted to take David's life. There have been multiple occasions. And believe it or not, even though he walks away today, this this is not going to be the last. In fact, if you you read, um, like I've been encouraging you to read, which I won't be preaching on, you'll see that while Saul relents today... He will come again in a very similar circumstance. Yet once again, David will refuse to lift his hand against Saul. And he will leave the judgment of Saul up to the Lord. And what the writer of 1 and 2 Samuel wants his readers to see is that the principles of God's kingdom are different than the principles of the world. The, the writer wants us to see that the key to David's success, as well as the success of those who would follow in his line, those who would one day sit up on his throne, would be a continual demonstration of personal restraint. The, it, it would be a, a, there would be a, a lack of striving after power and, and, and control and rule. Those who would, in the future, sit on David's throne... Those who would follow in his line, there would be a a willingness to to be still and to trust in the Lord. To defend them. And there is no greater example of this than in one of David's descendants. You may know who I'm thinking about. Jesus. You know, from the very beginning, if you go and you, you look at the gospel, you see that from the very beginning, Jesus came declaring to the people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he was declaring the kingdom of God that he was coming to sit upon the throne of David. His very purpose was to usher in the kingdom of God and to sit upon the throne. But perhaps some of you will remember that just before Jesus began his public ministry, just before Jesus began declaring the kingdom of God was at hand. Um, the spirit led him into the wilderness. And after fasting for 40 days. He was approached and tempted by the devil three different times. And I just want you to take a minute to look at the third temptation with me. It's in Matthew chapter 4 verses 8 and 9. This is the third temptation. It says, again, the devil took him to a very, took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, how 
the devil actually had the authority to offer such a thing is a subject for another day. But I do want you to notice that what the devil offered Jesus was actually the will of God for his life. But like David, Jesus also knew that the throne to which he would sit was only God's to give. He also knew that that God's will must come to pass in God's ways. He also knew that the principles of the kingdom operate very differently than the, king, than the principles of the world. And it wasn't just Satan that, that pressured Jesus to do this. Like David's men, the disciples of Jesus, on multiple occasions, repeatedly expected him to exercise his power, to flex his muscle, and to, to take the throne by force. But, like David... Jesus refused to use the typical methods of might and power to accomplish his purpose. Jesus refused to take matters into his own hands in order to defend himself, in order to put himself forth, or in order to promote himself. You see, what we see in David in our passage today, we see in far greater measure in our Lord Jesus. In in fact, it's capsulated in, in, in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6 through 11, listen to this. It says this about Jesus. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, listen, look at this. It says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. In other words, because of his humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, like David, Christ, I'll say this again, like David, Christ understood that the Lord's will must be achieved in the Lord's way. He understood that it was the Lord's will that his kingdom would be established through unique methods, through humility, through the humiliation of the cross. And rather than calling out for vengeance against his enemies, Jesus cried out for mercy. And and Jesus offered himself up as a substitute for his enemies. In in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus says this to a bunch of religious people who were suffering at the hands of others, including uh, suffering at the hands of tax collectors. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay? And then in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, look at this, to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, But I received mercy for this reason, 
so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Remember, Paul was a persecutor for Christians. He was out killing Christians, having them stoned. But God demonstrated his mercy to Paul so that we can see that, wow, if Paul was forgiven, I can be forgiven as well. And forgiveness comes through faith in Christ and trusting that the Lord has taken out his vengeance and his wrath on Jesus instead of me. You know, in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, we're told that Christ died for who? What's it say? Christ died for who? The ungodly. In verse 8, it says, God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, it says, it was while we were, what? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, now I recognize that it very well may be the case that there are some in here who today who have never really thought of themselves as a particularly ungodly person. I'm sure there's people in here who have have never really thought of themselves as an enemy of God's. But what is clear in these passages is that apart from Christ, that is certainly the way God thinks of you. And if you do not see yourself as somebody who is in need of of mercy, then you're in the wrong place. If you don't see yourself as somebody who is desperately in need of God's mercy, then this church and I as the pastor have absolutely nothing to offer you. The reason we are gathered here this morning is because we are either or maybe perhaps even both praising God for or crying out for God's mercy in our lives. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23 says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now again, you may not consider yourself doing evil deeds, but it's clear that God sees you that way apart from Christ. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, the Lord has taken his wrath out on Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, your sin was placed upon him. By faith, your sin is placed upon him and the Lord takes his wrath out against him instead of you. But at the same time, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to you, is placed upon you. And because of that, you have the favor of God. And that's the gospel. But here's something else that I think is essential for us to understand. These kinds of tests, these kinds of opportunities are not confined to David and to Jesus. But rather they are common to us all. These trials, these opportunities to suffer at the hands of others and to demonstrate restraint come to everybody 
They come to us again and again and again. You know, like David and, and like Jesus, there will always be those around us, whether at work or at school, in our neighborhood, or, or maybe even in our own families. There will always be people who are selfish, who are unnecessarily unkind, who are, are malicious, who are maybe hateful, who are dishonest, who, who have or will take advantage of us without remorse. There will always be those around us who in some form or fashion seek our destruction, who behave like enemies and deserve God's judgment. And like David and, and like Jesus, almost guaranteed, all of us will be afforded opportunities to capitalize on what might appear to be divinely appointed opportunities to exact the kind of justice that we think we need. There will always be what appear to be divinely appointed opportunities for us to take matters into our own hands. To get the justice that not just us, but those around us are entitled to. There will be what appears to be divinely ordained opportunities for us to bring an end to some sort of conflict. There'll be opportunities to stick it to those who have so gleefully been sticking it to us. Not only that, we like David and we like Jesus will also find ourselves surrounded by those who love us, who might be suffering along with us, who, who are sharing in our suffering, who will certainly think that we are absolutely crazy or even foolish for not capitalizing on those divinely appointed opportunities. But what we learn from David and also Jesus is that just because a door is open doesn't mean we should walk through it. And we got to understand, and we got to acknowledge, leaving judgment in God's hands, it is never easy. It's never an academic affair. It is almost always painful. In fact, sometimes it is incredibly painful. But it's God's people. That's what we're called to do. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 47, Jesus says, You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I know people say that. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, so that you may be like your Father, because that's the, what he has done. And then Jesus goes on to say this. He says, listen, if, if, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? Remember, tax collectors were the evil enemy, right? And if you greet your brother, only your brothers, what more do you, are you doing than other people? 
Do not even Gentiles do the same? In other words, the, what Jesus was saying, listen, one of the very primary things that sets a believer apart from unbelievers is how they respond to their enemies. One of the primary things that sets a believer apart from an unbeliever is, is having the capacity for restraint and, and the ability to refrain from retaliation. Even when it seems like a divinely appointed opportunity. One of the primary things that sets a believer apart from an unbeliever is a willingness to be still. And to trust in the Lord to judge rightly. And, and I hope you can think of, of, of situations in your own life very, right now with family, work, neighbor, where you're being mistreated or unfairly treated. And ask yourself, what is God calling me to do? Why does the Lord call us? Why, why does the Lord ask this of us? You, you could say, well, one reason is because that's what the Lord has done for us. And, and that would certainly be true. In fact, I would say knowing that you were once an enemy and, and God redeemed you and, and, and made atonement for your wrong against him. Knowing that, I think, is the key. It is the mechanism that gives us the spiritual power to then in turn do it for another. As John announced at the beginning of worship, the, the vision of this church is to equip, empower, and unleash. And, and the way we are equipped is by recognizing and being constantly reminded of God's mercy to us. That's what equips us. That's what empowers us and unleashes us to then Respond appropriately. So one reason is because that's what God has done for us. But, but I think there's another reason. I think it's because nothing, nothing exposes a person's heart more than the, the way that they treat their enemies. Nothing exposes a person's heart more than a willingness or perhaps even an unwillingness to trust in the Lord to, to deliver you from whatever particular circumstances or painful situations you might find yourself in. Nothing. Now I could end here, but I just want to make one more point. In Matthew chapter 28, we have the Great Commission. Verse 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and he said to them, he said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm the king. I am now sitting on my throne. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But then he tells his disciples, he tells his followers, he tells you and me, those of us who belong to Christ, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You know, this passage makes it clear that ultimately it is through the Lord's people that, that Christ will extend his global rule. And right now we see conflict in the world, perhaps maybe like we've never seen before in our own lifetimes. 
I'm not sure what we're faced with. But it is through the Lord's people that Christ extends his global rule. It's through the people of Christ that, that God sends us. He sends us forth to make disciples of all nations. So we are called to go out and declare his rule to, to the world. To all nations. But here's the thing. As you're watching the news... As you're spending time in prayer, I want you to think about this. How we declare his rule to the nations must honor the character of the one who suffered before he was exalted. Our declaration of Christ's rule to the nations must be accomplished through humility. And here's the other thing. It may even involve our own suffering for the sake of the kingdom. The fact is, there is no room for triumphal, triumphal arrogance in the economy of God's kingdom work. And these are hard things. But these are things that we must contemplate as believers in our own personal life and as we look at the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there are those of us in the room who need to repent, including myself, of the joy and the glee that we find in capitalizing on what we have convinced ourselves are divinely appointed opportunities. There are people in here who need to repent and ask forgiveness for taking matters into our own hands and, and failing to trust you to exact the proper vengeance and, and bring about justice. Lord, may we be a people who are willing to be still. May we be the kind of people who, who are able to restrain ourselves in miraculous ways, not because of any strength in us, but because we see the strength in you. Not because we are holy and righteous, but because you are holy and righteous and you have been merciful to us. And Lord, we pray these things in your precious and your holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.